I've never seen my soul either, and yet I revere it. 54. When people injure you, ask yourself what inhabits your so-called mind. If you understand that, you'll feel the nature in which it participates, as the leaf's nature does in the trees, except that the nature shared by the parts and the whole does nothing that doesn't benefit it. That's a trait shared by all people who feel as the gods, in touch with what is within them and what keeps a person undefiled by pleasures. Hello and welcome to the Culture Quest. We are but humble adventurers, but now we are above feelings. Nothing you may say or do can harm us. Joining me today are Peter. Hello. And Barrio. Hello, hello. And I am Inon. Thank you, the listeners at home, for taking part in our noble quest. Today we'll be discussing Meditations by Marcus Aurelius, the diary turned into book of a Roman emperor and philosopher. Before we get to that, I just want to mention, um, next episode we will be discussing American Beauty. That's a movie from 1999. More on that near the end of this episode. And also, you can find all the ways to contact and follow us in the show notes. Uh, this is only episode 5, but our numbers are slowly growing. And if you want to help us grow, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about us. And uh, we truly appreciate you listening at home. So thank you. And uh, let's start talking. Um, before we go into the main discussion, there's a, a quick chat I want to have with you guys about something. I, I don't know, about a week ago, I listened to a podcast called Thank the Maker. That's a podcast by... Uh, guy who's a global media student in London, and he's doing a podcast interviewing people in creative positions, talking to them about their work process and stuff. It's a fairly interesting podcast. And in one of his episodes, he was talking to someone about Star Wars. They mentioned how, you know, how Star Wars started like 40 years ago. They're in their third trilogy now. They had TV shows and books and comics and whatnot. And, um, you know, every fan of the series has kind of a different entry point to the series. And, you know, everyone kind of know a few spoilers to the movie. Like, there's one big one in uh, episode 5 where Darth Vader says, No, I'm your father. I, I remember I knew that line by heart when I was like eight before I even watched the movies. So that kind of made me think if there's, you know, anything as big as Star Wars today that has kind of major spoilers that are unavoidable. And I was thinking, what can we talk about that's kind of the same? And I was thinking about Harry Potter because it's everywhere. It's seven books are big. Everyone knows them. I think um, J.K. Rowling is the richest woman in Britain now uh, because of that. Except for the Queen. The Queen's a little bit higher. Uh, it has eight movies and also were huge success. So I, I was thinking... We're lucky because, Peter, you've never read or watched anything Harry Potter related, right? I have not. The most I've got is glimpses when I've walked past uh, TV at someone's house. How'd you, how'd you manage to miss it? I mean, it's, it's huge. <laughs> well, I didn't miss it in the sense that I, I wasn't grasping for opportunities. So, um... You know what? Maybe it is here today because when we were kids, it, you know, when every book came out, everyone was talking about it, but they're not coming out anymore. Yeah, but I was still a kid when they were coming out, so... Oh, really? Yeah, in fact, one of my favourite movies, The Devil Wears Prada, has a scene in it where the main character, which obviously I forget the name of when I'm trying to record a podcast about my favourite <laughs> things, um, 
Anne Hathaway has to source like the manuscript for one of the new Harry Potters for Meryl Streep's character. And um, yeah, so mm. obviously, you know, if Meryl Streep wants it, then it must be good. <laughs> but um, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's the only really way it sort of intersected in my life at all. Mm-hmm. But yeah, all my friends are really into it. And when I say all my friends, I mean most of humanity. And um, <laughs> I like British things. So, you know, Led Zeppelin, The Beatles and stuff like that, uh, British comedy I'm into. So it is a bit of an odd one to miss. But um, mm-hmm. I just, I think it started out as just, I missed the first few. And then I just might have seen something that I didn't like about as a like, oh, wizards, whatever. And then I just, I thought not liking Harry Potter actually is more distinctive a personality trait than liking Harry Potter at this <laughs> stage. So, I thought that's going to be me. <laughs> so, now it's just, now I'm just too old. <laughs> when the first book came out, I was like, um, I didn't understand the hype because it looked like the nerdiest thing to me. I think I was eight or maybe 10 and I skipped the first book and I skipped the second one until Barrio, I think you told me what's the story about. And then uh, the next morning I went out and got the book. (laughs) (laughs) I heard about it from my mother. She told me that there's this book that's getting so much attention because she kept uh, wanting me to to get a book and, and read a bit. And like her her sales pitch was like it's about a kid wizard who lives in a closet, <laughs> and it sounded not that good, but you get you get really pulled into it. Yeah. So let me ask you, Peter: Are there any major spoilers that kind of precede the books and the movies? Just like you know, in Star Wars, you can't avoid that line. Star Wars that was spoiled for me um, with that line, but I can't really say if it's spoilers because I don't know if things are jokes or not, but. If Harry's a wizard, that would be a spoiler. I'm really shooting shooting in the dark here. Oh, no, no. That's a good one, though. Yeah, it's a meme right now, right? The, the, I think when it is, Hagrid, yeah. t- the, the, the big hairy guy tells Harry Potter, Harry, you're, you're a wizard. I'm a what? <laughs> <laughs> that kind of happens uh, midway during the first book. So it's not oh, like okay. it, it doesn't change the whole narrative like like in Star Wars. But yeah, it's, it's a major mm-hmm. um, See, spoiler. It'd be much easier to spoil the next film in a Marvel Cinematic Universe for me because I know so much about it that if someone said just one sentence, I would you know, mm. be like a mini explosion in my brain. But I don't have enough straws to grasp at to even know what to think of the sentence if people said it to me. Like if they said, oh, Harry mm-hmm. Potter doesn't get into Hogwarts or something like that. Like I, I don't know <laughs> what that means. So like, you know, was the door heavy or like, you know, I just, I just don't, I just don't know what to do with it. So if it was spoiled, probably has been, then I don't, I don't know about it. <laughs> Well, let me ask you this. You you must have heard something about, the, I mean, bits and pieces about the story. If you had to write a description of the book right now, if you had to sell it to someone, what what would you tell them? Do I have to act like um, someone who's seen it? Do I have to? Yep. Okay. Well, I just go with a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of vague things. Like there's a sort of like an inner passion in Harry that he uh, doesn't know how to deal with. So he's looking out at people <laughs> trying to sort what, way to go in life and then he discovers the wizard academy and he finds his passion (laughs) (laughs) it's great trust me (laughs) how to how to say a lot without saying anything (laughs) there's always an internal struggle in every movie come on (laughs) i i really enjoyed reading it as a as a kid and i've read it so many times you know reread the the series but i wonder how it will be 
uh, to read it as an adult for the first time. Maybe we can do a special series of the, of the Culture Quest with you, mm. Peter, doing it one day. Yeah, that'd be cool. Go chapter by chapter and break it down. <laughs> you, know, you, you haven't watched Game of Thrones, or did you? No, I haven't. Uh, I mean, I, I watched the, the last uh, season, season eight. I try to read the books because I always read the books before I go watch the movie or the series. And by the second book, I got so bored. I told myself, I'm, I'm just pushing through it and I should stop because I'm not having any fun. So I, I dropped the books and I started watching the series. But it was so boring to me, so I dropped it as well. And when the last season started, everyone was so hyped about it. So I just, I think I watched a 30-minute recap of everything with you, I think. <laughs> and then I watched uh, the last uh, season live with whoever would watch it with me. <laughs> Because I had no clue who anyone was or what's the importance of anything. And I was just like the, the annoying guy who said, when everything is tense and every, everything is, you know, it's the most important moment of the series. I was like, who is she? Is she important? <laughs> <laughs> How did you enjoy the last season? I thought it was great. A lot of drama. The shots were beautiful. Everything seemed so great to me. I mean... But later, my girlfriend told me uh, how they missed everything, how they missed a lot of points, how the story just... It just felt like, I think, they were rushing through it just to be done with it, right? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's probably it. Peter, have you, have you watched uh, Game of Thrones? Have not seen any of it, guys. Oh, wow. <laughs> so if you had to describe Game of Thrones... <laughs> <laughs> Swords, death, families... Uh, <laughs> incest, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Dragons, um, pools, and um, Middle Ages. <laughs> What about Lord of the Rings? How would you describe that? Okay, you haven't read that as well. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> dwarfs, um, mountains, rings, and hobbits. Is hobbits dwarfs? Yeah, hobbits dwarfs. <laughs> <laughs> hobbits dwarfs. <laughs> I can't believe you asked that, Peter. It's, it's a blasphemy. But wait, Star Wars you have watched? I have watched Star Wars, yes. All of the movies? Uh, up to episode seven and Rogue One. So um, I think there cool. might be episode eight or something out. Is that right? Yeah, eight is out and nine is coming out in a couple of months. Um, this month, in actually. Two weeks. So I'm one behind, but yeah. Uh, how'd you like it? Um, the... Uh... Wookiees, lasers, Death Star. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it was good. I watched them in chronological, so four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, and mm -hmm. then Rogue One. Yeah. And um, I thought my favorite was Rogue One. I like that. All the other favorites were four, five, and six. One, two, and th one and two weren't really that good for me. Three was okay. And um, seven was pretty average, if, if ever yep. I can take down those notes quickly while I spew out my thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, the really old ones, good. The really new ones, not so much. But Rogue One was a bit of an exception. So Not a lot of people would cite Rogue One as the best Star Wars film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, not a lot of people would. But um, side by side against um, 4, 5, and 6, I felt like I could connect a little bit more with Rogue One because I wasn't watching it when I was a kid. So mm -hmm. um, yeah. Luke was pretty young and I felt like it was aimed at a maybe like a younger audience or at least a more retro audience so yeah uh-huh 
I started with uh, the first three movies. I watched uh, episode one to three when I was like, I don't know, 10 or 11. Okay. And I, yeah, I didn't love them. But then when I was around 20, which is maybe too late, but I watched four, five, six, and they're great fun. They're not great movies, but they're fun. But now I, I don't really like seven and eight. And my favorite one is, I think, episode three out of all the series. Okay. Episode three was all right. Actually, now that uh, episode nine is, is about to come out, then I started re-watching all, all the movies. And I'm watching it like in the machete order that come to try and emph- emphasize uh, more of Luke Skywalker's character. Like the order is you watch episode four and five, then you go and watch episode two. Well, if, if you want to watch episode one, although a lot of people say that just forget about it, but basically one, two, three, I, ju- I just finished episode three and, uh, and then you watch six, seven and eight. And I kind of scheduled it to finish a day before, you know, the, the ninth episode comes out and, and kind of close the whole series and, and understand uh, what it was all about. I, I, wa- I rewatched the old movies now, like episode four and five, and I remembered they were So slow and kind of pointless, but they were better than I remembered. Episode one just sucks. <laughs> and, um, and episode two was better than I remembered. I also really love episode three. I think there's some good drama and, and like you can really see the, the character of, you know, of Anakin Skywalker with all the promise that he brought to the universe of Star Wars just breaking down. bad you know I, I think it, it was like a Greek tragedy it was clear it's gonna happen but it still was very very significant and, I, and now I'm gonna like next week I'm gonna watch uh, episode six like I really enjoyed watching episode three now because it connects really beautifully to uh, to episode four like it's filled with references they're building the death star they're taking Luke and Leia the children of uh, of Anakin Skywalker Walker of, of Darth Vader to uh, fostering homes I guess. I don't know, it kind of wraps up uh, nicely. Yeah, I watched the Star Wars in the Machete Order a few years ago. It really brought out a lot of um, character traits of Anakin and Luke. It shows you a lot of parallels between them that I haven't noticed before. I mean, I watched the whole series like two times or three times before I watched the Machete Order, and I, I really recommend it. So um, I just wanted to take a minute before we go into the main discussion to thank D.E. Midas quickly. He made our intro for this episode, and um, if you listen closely, you may hear his voice again by the end of this episode. He has his own podcast, Midaspod, in which they do short stories, sci-fi and fantasy stuff with uh, voice actors, which I thought were really talented. Check him out. I think he has nine episodes by now, and he's working on more as we speak. So thank you, Midas, for parodying this audiobook for us. which we're going to be discussing in a second. Uh, if you guys, you want to make your own intros like um, Midas did for us uh, on this episode, you can always check our website uh, to see what episode we're going to be releasing soon. And you can send us um, your own intros. They don't have to be, you know, top quality. And they just have to be fun. You can record anything you can think of. Just send it over. Uh, we may use it. Maybe not for an intro, but we, we may feature it on our episodes. Um, thank you guys again for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I thought it was one of our best. Um, so thank you. Let's go to the main discussion. Today we're talking about The Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Now, you just said in the intro that Marcus Aurelius was a Roman philosopher, but I don't think he would have called himself that because Marcus Aurelius, he was in a 
interesting position as a leader because he was he was more of a student of philosophy rather than a philosopher. But his meditations are, I guess you could call them like a scrapbook of thoughts over about 19-year period, which is usually dated to about the 170s, so that's 170, his last decade. And it's quite a stressful period for him, dealing with obviously leadership and blame and um, obviously just the things that come with being someone high up in the world at that time. Yeah, weren't they dealing with war on a few fronts or something? Yeah, essentially. As the emperor, you have to deal with it. (laughs) Must be stressful. (laughs) Yeah. Another reason why I would say he's not a philosopher would be because his uh, notes weren't meant for publishing. They were recovered. They weren't given out for dissemination. Which is interesting because knowing this, it makes it more authentic because if someone is willing to write something down and not necessarily get any credit for it, it definitely instills a bit of confidence that it's truer to what they really do believe. And many people would cite this as probably the main book on Stoicism, definitely Roman Stoicism. So there was early and middle Stoicism, which was just embracing all knowledge and stuff like that. But Roman Stoicism was more about practical concepts. And I think this book is very much favours towards practical ideas and practical discipline, how to change your attitude to life rather than establishing like a metaphysics. I don't think he's really establishing an ethics. Some people would say he is, but I think it's definitely more crutches which you can use to improve your life rather than him saying like, in what situation is what ethical? I think he's just, I think he's giving guidance, but yeah. So um, what sort of expectations did you guys have coming into this book? Because obviously I don't think you guys knew Marcus Aurelius, which is quite common. But knowing you're about to read a book from uh, Roman philosophy from the 170s, what did you guys um, think going into it? Were you excited or were you dreading it? Well, first of all, I was excited to read something that was written so long ago by a Roman emperor. It's an honor to read something someone like that wrote. And well, I expected something a bit different because when he told us you want to read this book, I told my girlfriend about it and she said she just heard about this book. There was an S credit post that asked what book would you recommend to someone who is depressed? A lot of people recommended this one and I thought it might be, you know, I, I was kind of thinking it's going to be a book that, you know, really helps you uh, live your life and gives you a lot of ideas about how to get out of depression and stuff, but it doesn't really touch that uh, subject a lot. So I I didn't expect this. I didn't think it was going to be a list of ideas of situations. Yeah, it is a bit of a book of quotes I yeah. found when I went into it. Yeah. it. It definitely did feel like a quote for every day. But mm-hmm. yeah. What about you, Barrio? I read a couple of Greek philosophers' books. And so I was kind of expecting pretty much uh, the same notion, like kind of uh, talking about this whole concepts and and building them up and uh, using all kind of methods to to illustrate them like in, in conversations or uh, dialogues etc so kind of the vibe took me by surprise because um, at first like it felt like an exposition right I, I thought that he was just putting the ideas out there and he's gonna yeah. he's gonna drill down and, and kind of explain uh, how did he get to each of the concepts that, that he discussed and, and kind of give maybe more practical examples or, or maybe some things that, that is a bit broader. But I think that uh, what you mentioned, Peter, is, is kind of like the, the notion of the book, 
of like you get a like this kind of phrase a day yeah it's like he walked with uh with a notebook in his pocket and every time he had an idea he stopped and wrote it down yeah which obviously you you're gonna get a lot of ideas over and over again but it's not processed as much yeah. as like a normal book would be yeah I definitely agree which isn't bad you know I I actually found I, I think that I, I'm not sure that he wrote it down but it kind of reminded me of um you know ma- mantras yeah. that you mm-hmm. repeat yeah to yourself in order to kind of um, make it part of your day-to-day yeah. point of view. So he talks a lot about change. So he obviously had a thing with, with change. And I don't know, I kind of got, got that he kept repeating to himself that change is inevitable. Um, change is natural. We should, we should embrace change. You can't do anything without, without change. So why are we so afraid of it? And that kind of made him feel better, which... I think that I, I'm not sure if he called the book meditation or maybe no, it's something that, he, that came, came later. later. yeah yeah so but but that but that's kind of the point of meditation it th- I think he named it thoughts to myself yeah yeah we've posthumously just called it meditations so. hmm. well really the fact that it's repetitive and that he keeps going over the same themes and that it has no sort of overarching it has overarching themes but it doesn't have a A continuous sort of plot or he doesn't drill down but when you think about it, it's really what else did we expect because he's written it over 19 years and it wasn't meant for publishing so this is exactly what you would get in a scrapbook which is nice but it makes it a bit harder to read yeah did you guys take anything away from the book at all like in practical terms or well i gotta say that a lot of the ideas that he talks about in the book I'm not sure if to call it common knowledge but they're not revolutionary I mean like you like even even yep. the idea about change or talking about the relativity of something that being being good or natural and and etc those those are kind of like familiar ideas in modern time but it kind of took me by surprise that um, he, he thought about these things so long ago when they're they probably weren't in the norm so I took from it that maybe our modern ideas are, are not that modern are not that new and and it's interesting to think about because um, the society that we live in today kind of matured enough in order to to make those ideas be a bit more common and talked about more often I definitely agree that it is great quite commonsensical but perhaps you could say we've sort of lost sight of a few of these things so he's trying to sort of well he's not trying to get us back to where it is because he wouldn't know he wouldn't know how society has gone today but I think back in those days people probably it probably might not have been um, as common knowledge but I guess that's to be wondered about though what about you Nan? um it's hard to say because I I kind of felt like there's a lot of in this book that I I don't agree with because I Um, he he talks a lot about determinism you know, like everything is predetermined and I don't agree with that at all and he talks a, a lot of times in like he uses absolute terms which I don't agree with um, I, I don't only a Sith deals with absolutes <laughs> yeah <laughs> but honestly every once in a while he had a, a, a sentence or an idea that just I don't know just worked for me just went straight to the heart and and uh, this book I don't know I think it's one of those books that you You kind of have to pick up every once in a while read a few sentences yeah uh, that, that's how I see this book 
Yeah, it'd be good if we have disagreements over it because that could be interesting. But um, I'll pick out a few themes that I felt like sort of carried through the book. I'll come up with a maybe a quote or two about them just to see what our interpretation is and um, if we thought it was useful, if it wasn't useful, right, wrong, or yeah, just your general thoughts. So, um, so the first theme I have is nature. So as he said, he talked a lot about determinism and stuff. And one of the quotes I have here is, um, whatever this is that I am, it is flesh and a little spirit and an intelligence. No one can keep you from living as your nature requires. Nothing can happen to you that is not required by nature. So that that last bit, um, no one can keep you from living as your nature requires. Nothing can happen to you that is not required by nature. That's... Um, in in one sense, it's a little bit demeaning because it sucks. <laughs> if if you think uh, you know, I thought I thought I could do whatever I want, but if it's just nature, then at first instance you think, oh, that's not great. But I I have a but I have a defence of it. But um, I also have a few um, comments about it. So, what did you guys think about it? Um, first off, the theme of nature, not just that quote. Uh, I'm not sure because sometimes I thought. Like you said, smart things about nature. Like it's in our nature to do things. Uh, we are part of nature. Nature. There is something that is bigger than us. But sometimes I don't know. Sometimes I thought he said things like, "As long as you do what nature requires of you, then nothing bad can happen, and you won't feel bad, and and everything will be good." Which, in the bigger picture, sure. But for you as a small person, I, I don't think I agree with that. It kind of reminds me that, um, like in physics, the general approach, I guess, that everything is kind of deterministic. I mean, it's not necessarily something that, that we can practically predict, but like in theory, everything is deterministic. But the best uh, strategy is probably not to live your life as everything predicted. Mm, yeah. Like we're always doing what our nature requires. Maybe, you know, part of our nature is not believing that our nature is something that dictates us what to do. <laughs> it's it's kind of recursive, right? Our nature is not to believe in our nature. Um, it doesn't contradict that line, but it does give you uh, freedom to change your patterns. The, 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 the last part of the sentence, I kind of like it because it, it kind of says that everything is okay. You know, like in the grand scheme of things, everything is by nature. Everything everything is natural. Everything is happening. There's no... Um, well, he talks a lot about the gods and being raised by them or, I don't know, hurt by them, but, you know, for, for, a, for a cause. Um, but that approach kind of... I don't know. It, it kind of brings you peace, you know, to, to understand that everything comes naturally, the good and bad. I have another quote that goes with this one, I think. Um... Nature is pliable, obedient, and the logos that governs it has no reason to do evil. It knows no evil, does no evil, and causes harm to nothing. Well, I think it's a beautiful sentence because I think it says here, uh, nature causes harm to nothing. Again, in the bigger picture, nothing really is harmed. Everything is kept in line. Everything is natural. An interesting thing that, that he kind of draws this point into is uh, when talking about like if something does something that, that you don't agree with, um, that you think that is wrong, if you keep thinking about the nature of, of that person doing that deed, you can either see that he's not aware of his mistake and, the, and then you should kind of pity him or that he 
is doing something that he fully believes in. And when he does that, how can you even, how can you hate him? It kind of reminds me, um, you know, uh, from uh, Orson Scott Card, the uh, Ender's Game books, right? So in one of the books, I don't remember which, I think maybe the second one, they're saying like, you can't really know someone and not love him. Like if you really know why people do what they do, you won't be able to not fully appreciate them and, and fully love them because like they have their whole story, their their whole nature behind them that brought them to, the, to this point. Well, there's so much to talk about, but um, I'll try to summarize my thoughts. I find that um, people often overlook what nature is because you could say, oh, well, humans are just born to eat, procreate, you know, sleep and die essentially like that. And it doesn't, it sounds like um, people are trying to like limit what we really do. Like we're saying, well, no, I can play basketball. I can, you know, I can run a marathon or something like that. But I think just the, I think what's overlooked is just our genes have sort of been selected over billions of years. So um, I think it's, I think it's important to realize that a lot of what we do is the result of natural selection, which is interesting because this is way before Darwin, but I think this would actually bolster his book because things such as why do we crave heat when it's cold and why do we want food when we're lonely and all this stuff like that. I think a lot of these are just biological sort of impulses, but people are sort of mistaking them for, oh no, that's what I want, you know, that's that's how I feel, whereas it it can be both that and a biological sort of predisposition to do these things. So when you think about it, the humans that share all of our DNA or very close, we're all doing remarkably the same things. You know, we all want wealth, we all want heat, we all want family and stuff like that. And if you compare that to bees and stuff like that, which are very altruistic, I find it hard to argue with the natural law. But I think where he goes a bit too far is where it stops becoming a useful explanation for why we do what we do and it says we should do these things because it's natural i think when it switches over that line i hope i'm being clear here but when it's when it goes over the line from this is what explains why we do what we do to you should do it because it's natural i think that's a problem because you could say things like homosexuality or um, overeating or riding dangerous skateboards or something like that they're all not natural that wouldn't help you survive or anything like that or pass on children or something like that but i don't think not being natural is from an evolutionary sense i don't think that would be an argument to not do those things. The other thing that I was going to bring up was um, the concept that everything is sort of determined. And he talks about the gods when he talks about this stuff. But then towards the end of the book, he says whether or not there are gods, everything may be determined or it might be random, which I thought was very open-minded for him because I, I, I thought it would go more of a god sort of direction towards the end, but it actually went much more sort of agnostic in a way yeah and he talks about yeah he talks about like things like um you know indeterminacy and stuff like that which is you know quite interesting for um someone who lived in the 170s and um my personal belief is that it we live in a state which would would be indeterminate for which would be able to factor in quantum mechanics and stuff like that so I, i i do agree with him when he says like 
everything that you do is sort of is natural because I don't think there is anything that's supernatural. But I and I also agree with Barrio when he says that it's not useful to think like that all the time because if you think, oh, I don't have free will, whatever happens, happens, that in itself is a predetermined thought. So you've sort of got to act like you're, you have all these motivations because you do have motivations, but you, you're just not in control of what your motivations are. And I think that connects nicely with what you're saying with if you know someone's intentions – or if you know the reasons why someone does something and they do it, then you can't hate them for doing that. Because if you held the same belief, you would do the same thing. So I often find there's an analogy with um, people who sort of protest in the name of God, who would protest against, say, like gay marriage or something like that. But if you if you honestly believe that if you were homosexual and you were going to burn in hell for eternity... That would be the right thing to argue for, really. If that was true, then for a few odd measly years on Earth, it would actually be worth not doing that if you're going to spend eternity. Eternity is quite a long time (laughs) (laughs) burning in hell. (laughs) So I do think I do have some sympathy where I think that if I held that belief, then I then I'd be that would be my duty to yeah. help people not do that. that so. That's that's very interesting. You know, I, I recently heard a talk about like the Holy Inquisition, and you know, we, we look at it as such a negative thing today. But in that time, they truly believed they were helping people. You know, like today we we bring people with cancer and 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 put them through chemotherapy, which is a very hard experience or we take people that that we think are mentally ill and we give them certain medications and like that that is what people were basically doing in in the in the whole inquisition uh, through their set of beliefs and and probably like you know if we'll take i don't know 100 years from now maybe even less we will look at a lot of, of what we define as sick people today and and we will just be appalled by how how we did it I'm just going to quickly bring up the next theme I had because I think we're going to naturally, um, curse my words, <laughs> naturally transition <laughs> to it. The next theme I had was compassion. So um, I, I feel like we're sort of going there with if if we had someone else's beliefs, say someone is just a terrible person, doesn't wash their dishes in the in the kitchen or something like that, but you would think if you had their same um, genetic makeup, if you had the same brain as them, you had the same synapses firing at the same time, you would be that person. So it's, mm-hmm. and how is it their fault that they're not that person? So I feel like there is, if, if that doesn't lead you directly to a path that is more compassionate or more understanding, I, I don't know what to say. I think, I think it's quite a good argument for um, sort of constantly reminding yourself that you're lucky to be a person that can do the things that you can do, that you can tell right from wrong and stuff. And I feel like there's an implicit sort of agreement about this when for young people. So like when kids are playing around on the side of the road and they walk in front of a car and the, the car driver's obviously like shaken up because he's, you know, almost ran over a kid and the parents are like, oh, I'm sorry and stuff like that. But everyone's sort of understanding because they know or their brain hasn't developed yet. But then when we get to an older age, someone might be 35 or something like that. They might be drinking and they might stumble on the road. But then all of a sudden we get really angry at them. Whereas 
The only difference is that the 35-year-old should have known better, whereas a child, we think it's very unlikely for them to have acquired that knowledge yet. But how is it the 35-year-old's fault that he hasn't acquired that knowledge? That seems, if 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 the 35-year-old could somehow in another, in another dimension look at himself, he would want that knowledge. So what are we blaming? We're almost not blaming the 35-year-old, we're blaming the circumstances that he is sort of involved with. So what did you guys think about compassion? I really like this idea. I mean, um, you have to remind yourself that deep inside, no one's trying to do evil things. No one's trying to be bad. They're doing the best they can. They're doing the best they can think of. And, and again, it's, I don't know, it shouldn't change the way you act and change the way you live your life. But it's something we need to remind ourselves and, and live by, I think. <laughs> Uh, you know, like the, the the naive approach is that the world is a battle between between good and evil, um, and some cynics say that that it's a battle between evil and evil. But like probably the correct way to look at it is, is that the world is just a continuous battle between good and good, uh, because you know everyone are very much. I don't think that people are are naturally evil or bad. Like usually, people want to do the right thing, and and I do think that most of the people, most of the time, do what they think is right. It's not it's not to say that there isn't evil around or or there aren't bad things, but I kind of feel that most most of those that we experience are just uh, misinterpretations of um, of other deeds. And and the misinterpretation a lot of time you know it, it brings a lot of grief you know because of the of the disappointment maybe that that you get from uh, from a deed that you think is is wrong I I think that's kind of what you try to say Peter about uh, you know our our expectation from a 35 years old for example uh, when comparing it to to a child because I think both the child and the grown up they do what they think is right or at least good enough you know but we have more tolerance for children or maybe we have less tolerance for for grown-ups because we kind of expect them to to get aligned to what is normally good we have we have like this this standard but that is not to say that when someone does something um they they think they do evil with it yeah the the line between just not knowing good from bad and evil is is a tricky one because you could say like if 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 an evil person does something bad well they're just as unfortunate as everyone else or or as the people they're hurting because the evil person is unlucky to be the evil person you know they're the ones who grew up with the genes that would make them the evil person but the reason why we have more sympathy for the victims than the evil person even if it was a murder suicide or something where at the end of the day they're both the same is because the victims we find would be in any other situation they would be good people whereas in any other situation the evil person would be a bad person so it's really if we're choosing whether to incarcerate a good person or an evil person, we could say they didn't have any choice over their genes, but we would incarcerate the evil person because, well, they're going to be a harm to society. So it's not necessarily, I think, is that we shouldn't necessarily blame people for having the genes and we shouldn't blame them for doing what they do because what they do is, is um, in a sense, not ultimately their decision, but... 
I think um, when it comes to restricting behavior and casting blame, I think it's more productive to blame adults for crimes because if we if we blame adults, it's um, it's a better description of who they are going to be in the future. Whereas children all grow up being a little bit stupid in certain ways, so we don't know what they're going to tr- contribute to society. But someone who's already matured and is doing these things, we can say, well, what are the chances in the next 10 years they're going to be a nurse or be a doctor or something like that? We can say that's pretty low. So even if we're ignorant about ultimate responsibility, we don't have to be ignorant about the causes and the effects. I read a book a while back, um, The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, have you read it? Uh, I've read The Happiness Hypothesis and I've read a brief description of The Righteous Mind, but I'm looking forward to reading it one day. Mm, Yeah, I really recommend it. It talks about like people on different sides of, um, say, like the political spectrum or people who are religious versus people who aren't religious. And he talks about what kind of separates these groups. You know, I know in which group I am and I look at the people in the other group and I think either they're evil or they're wrong. And in this book, it talks about what separates us, what's really different about people in this or that group. And he shows you that what separates us is just a different set of values. He talks a lot about um, the political spectrum. And you see that the people on the other side of the spectrum, he kind of analyzes their um, set of values. And you see that it may be different than my set of values, but honestly, they're positive values. They're great values. This book really changed how I see it because... I really used to think as people on the other side is wrong, but no. I mean, maybe I don't see the world the same way that they see it, but they're not wrong. They have great values that they stand for. And if I could put myself in their shoes, I think I would totally agree with them. And I think this is exactly what um, Marcus Aurelius was speaking about in this uh, kind of theme. I think when you're arguing about things like politics and religion and stuff like that, Really, if it, if if the end result isn't to contribute to something that Marcus Aurelius points to, which wasn't coined by him, but um, eudaimonia, I think I can't remember who who um, coined that. I think it might have been Plato, but not sure. Someone will fact check me online. Um, <laughs> I, I know it will come. Um, so, um, but eudaimonia is essentially translated to human flourishing, and I think if it doesn't come back to that, then I think it, you're in a you're in a tough argument, but when you when you think about all all types of arguments on the political spectrum, it would be about improving. If you're on the right, if you're on the left, it would be about improving society. But obviously, people have different things that they think will improve society. So we could call yeah. them values, uh-huh. and then on top of that, then you have different ways that you can achieve those values. So you can call them policies. So, um, and I think what. Uh, Marcus Aurelius would recommend is we emphasize what we agree on. Like if we're talking about healthcare, we want more people to be more have more access to healthcare, and then we can sort of go down the line of at what point do we actually disagree about something? You know, so we could say, well, mm-hmm. we all care about being healthy. We all think we want to go into a hospital and be able to get care, but then we say, well, we all want to be able to have it for free but that might that that last sentence might might not be right maybe maybe we owe something and maybe some people say we don't owe something so there's there's a there's a there's a way it diverges which i think it's important to narrow down and why it diverges you know why do some people think 
Um, we owe the state something. Why do people think it's it should be free? There's no point arguing about policies when there's deeper things that um, actually separate people. Uh, are you guys ready for the third theme? This one is character and virtue. So I'll start off with a quote. Focus on what nature demands as if you were governed by that alone. Then do that and accept it. Unless your nature as a living being would be degraded by it. Then focus on what that nature demands and accept that too, unless your nature as a rational being would be degraded by it. So I think what he's saying is um, in our first theme. We're yeah, talking please about, explain it to us. <laughs> <we're>, <laughs> so there's a lot of repetitive words there, but what I think it is actually an interesting quote because it's saying focus on what is natural. So you could say the you might go with a basic evolutionary homo sapien life. And act as if you could do that alone, like governed by that principle alone. And then if you do that and you find that your nature is degraded by it, so you're, you can't live in that, you can't be governed by that nature alone, then you need to focus on what your new nature will be. I think it's sort of like a long-winded way of saying you should really use trial and error to sort of get to where you're happy with what you're doing. So I kind of feel like I do this in my life already. So like I sort of, the way I prioritize things, I sort of, I put out just a general, what what should I prioritize? Work 50% or something like that. And then I usually go back and revise it if it's, if it's not working for me, if it's not, if, if I don't feel like I could keep it up. And then I continuously do that until I find there's no other way that I could make it better. But the thing about it is the only quibble I have with his character and virtue is that, again, you have to act in accordance with nature. I don't, I don't feel like it's a, it works as a normative statement. I, f- I feel like it's a good descriptive statement to say we act as if, you know, we act according to nature. But I think, I don't think to desire that is necessarily useful so what did you guys think about um, character and virtue and feel free to give us quotes there's a short tale i'm trying to kind of remember it but you know some some wise man uh, is supposed to get executed and he can choose uh, how so he chooses to walk on a rope above uh, a very high cliff like he pulls it through and and they asked him when he reaches the end they ask him how how did he do it and he says um you know, whenever I started falling to one side, I just pulled to the other. And, you know, that tale is an analogy for, for life because you keep trying to get to this uh, balance with your nature and as long as it's doing good for you. Um, because when you when you start to feel that you, you kind of fall towards it, like you're, you're being degraded by it, then you, you start focusing, you're trying to pull to, to the other direction. I think this is I, I can I can very much relate to it. I think I think all of us can can relate to it because pretty much every um, self-managed person kind of understand when he does something too much or or something that kind of uh, hurts him and, and then pull to another side. I think yeah. your example with you know work-life balance is probably the most common one. <laughs> I tackle it uh, also all the time. Yeah, I th- I think it's a just a method of constantly course correcting you know, constantly influxed between different... Keep checking yourself. Keep, yeah. Keep, keep seeing that what you do feels right. Yeah. 
I, I think the word degraded isn't a good word in this in this sentence. I think um, a better phrase instead of degraded doesn't work in the sentence, but would be if it doesn't work. For instance, when I say in the workplace or something like that, if something is something's gone wrong, and I say, "Hmm, how am I going to confront this?" I always feel like this is a little bit like categorical imperative, if you guys have heard of it. But say I'm approaching, do I approach someone about an issue hastily or do I do I say it quickly? Do I try not to address it up front? Do I try to just maybe give them a hint of what's wrong and let them to come to the conclusion? Do I do I talk to them? Like, Do I just put up all the facts up front? Do I try to, do I have any attitude or do I not? And I usually think, well, I focus on one one sort of attempt and I say, well, what about if I just drop a little nugget in their mind for them? And I say, is that a good nature? Is that a good method of operating? And I say, it's probably not the best way to do it. If I had to do that a hundred times, doing that a hundred times out of a hundred times, but it's probably not the best way to do it. Personally, the best the best way would be to have all the facts up front and talk directly to them about it and like express myself fully i find that would be a that doesn't degrade or it it, it does work for me so i feel like that course correction is kind of what i'm getting at just seeing if everything will fit together if it actually fits together within my life if that's something that i can do every time so the word degrade is a little bit of a misnomer Mm -hmm. i don't think i don't think that works as well um, at least in 21st century language. I say nature is a method of operating and degrade is more if it works and then that quote yeah. sort of comes together a bit easier. Yeah. All right. Those three I felt like go together a little bit, but then the, um, th- these next two, I've got training the mind and training thoughts and I've also got um, choosing your attitude and your response. So I feel like these are becoming a little bit more popular now with um, mindfulness meditation, which um, has sort of spiked in the last 10 years. Um, yeah, I kind of thought that you were going to start with these two because I don't know if they're the ones he's, he, the Marcus Aurelius focuses on the most, but these are the ones that popped to me the most. I did want to uh, warm us up a little bit before we get into it. So um, I get it. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> I feel like this is what I thought Stoic philosophy was. I thought this was the whole book, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And it was a lot of the book, but letting sort of emotions wash over you, not being harmed, I thought that's what Stoic sort of stood for. And I I guess I was partially right. It's... um, That's a lot about what it is, but it also has a few other elements that we talked about. Um, And I also thought that it was a lot about, I don't know why, but I've always associated the minimalist uh, movement with Stoicism. And I, I guess that comes from, um, well, if you if you sort of don't become attached to too much, training your mind to be at peace, I guess materialism doesn't really fit in with that as much. So, yeah, um, yeah. I'll give you guys a quote, um, if you'll allow me. Uh, the mind in itself has no needs except for those it creates itself. It is undisturbed except for its own disturbances, knows no obstructions except for those from within. So I haven't done too much meditation, but I've always done sort of like a two to three minutes of meditation every day just to sort of recenter myself after lunch. And I've, I've always 
focused on just my breath and let emotions sort of wash over me. So something in my mind, such as like anger, anger is probably one of the most common to let pass because it's such a guttural sort of physical um, emotion. It's sort of, you know, your your face tenses up and you so it's such an, a bit of adrenaline. So that one is like, you sort of look at yourself like, what am I doing? Like, come on, just let this go. And I feel like that's one of the strongest, yet one of the easiest, because it's it's the easiest to identify as an emotion. Because sometimes you're so gripped in the emotion that you don't realize it's an emotion. But I find like sadness is one of the harder ones to sort of get over in my head, or not get over, but sort of just recognize it for what it is. And I feel like this two to three minutes of meditation every day, I sort of I sort of get a little. It's like a coffee shot of stoicism every day. It's just trying to be at peace just for a couple minutes. And I feel like it. I feel like it does help. And I think in this book, because I know we don't necessarily agree completely with what he says about nature. And compassion was quite interesting. However, I felt like I'd sort of come to that realization. So this was just rejigging it for me. But training the mind's thoughts, I feel like this was so interesting coming from a Roman emperor in um, 100 AD. I I thought it was just really, um, really incredible. What did you guys think? It is incredible. But sometimes he used this idea to describe something that I, I felt was totally the opposite. I mean, sometimes he talks about training your mind to not feel things where life isn't good, like where you lose your job when someone is sick, when you don't have money to put yeah. food on the table, then use this idea to, to not worry about that. I don't know, it goes too far, I think, sometimes. I totally agree that we can control our thoughts and control our feelings more and be in control, but... To a certain point, I mean, because these feelings are useful. They, they're here to, to tell us something about life, about the world around us. And yeah. you can't just turn off the negative ones. I just want to say, Peter, that um, I think the meditation that you're doing, that's, that's really awesome. I mean, um, if, you, if you succeed in um, doing it and, and it has this, this effect, it's really, it's really amazing. Thanks. Um, I, I got to say that I think uh, at, at this point, that quote and the one similar to it, they like really reminded me uh, Buddhism. Mm. Um, I've been to India um, about two years ago, I think. Okay. And I went to this really one-on-one Buddhism course. Uh, there's a Toshiba center in uh, Dharamsala. And um, it's like three days that you sit and discuss Buddhism. You, you kind of practice a bit meditation and and, and it's a very interesting experience, but like, you know, what you said, that was the thing that kept bothering me the most, because like like Marcus Aurelius, in, in Buddhism, you need to let go. Like, you need to be above all those, um, like, getting attached to material things, that's kind of, not only that it blinds you from, from the actual reality, it will in definition, will cause you pain and, and suffering. They kept using this example that the thing that brings you most happiness that you can think of, like a, this amazing chocolate cake, you know, three layers hot from the oven, just just amazing. And nothing will be as good as the first bite. Like you will take the first the first bite and it will be amazing because you craved for it for so long. But from then on, you will just experience disappointments. And you feel that you have this need for the chocolate cake or to love someone or to succeed in your career or, you know, or, or anything, these this wills. 
and they're saying that it just creates the the attachment for the material thing and you don't really need it your mind doesn't really need it exactly like marcus aurelius says and they both say train your mind because even that longing is something that is um it's, it's inherited but it's not definitive you can you can see how you can change it but i sat there i was like yeah i i understand that i mean it could be nice to be to be above all this but that kind of misses the point of actually living you know yeah you take the good you take the bad and then you get the facts of life the mind knows no obstructions except those from within which i really like this idea but it's it's only true to a certain extent there's more than you there's outside there's external things as well and i don't know i like the idea of training yourself to to control your feelings and your thoughts but to a certain extent you know but if you could would you no definitely not um i think some of the aims of meditation and especially some of the buddhists are just to say i'm just going to separate myself as much as possible it's 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 just pure goodness the further you go up the meditation scale it's it's the more i separate the better it gets but i think what marcus aurelius would advocate if he was living in the 21st century would be to be able to sort of turn off and on you want to be able to live in the moment you don't want to be thinking about your responses when you're having a good time but when things aren't going to plan you want to be able to sort out your mind from within and learn to get through it rather than live your life perpetually in this state i think there's definitely value to being lost in sort of thought and not realize you're thinking like when you're enjoying a movie you're not just saying well that's this is just light hitting the screen you want to be able to turn that function off and really enjoy the plot even though you know it's not obviously real but i feel like if you were sort of wanting to live a good life you'd, you'd want to be able to use this choosing your attitude and choosing your responses yeah. to be able to improve your external circumstances as well so i think ignoring the external constantly i don't think that's a smart idea i think it's i think you want to be able to harness it to improve your circumstance and live through bad circumstances when you have to Yeah, you don't want to disconnect and ignore everything. You want to just distance yourself yeah. so you can make the right decisions. Yeah, yeah that, this is an idea I like. Uh, the last one, which we sort of talked about a little bit, but this one is simplicity and essentialism. I know there's a lot of sort of a stoic movement right now, which is focusing on minimalism. So obviously having sort of like a clean house is what I first associate minimalism with, but it's also not having too many clothes, not having... too many possessions sometimes it's camping like um, instead of living in a home sometimes it's living in a small home with not many possessions it can be anything from your fashion a minimalist fashion minimalist art and there's obviously um, probably a movement somewhere that I'm not aware of which is minimizing your um, desktop icons which I need to get on board <laughs> with um, <laughs> but I think it's interesting how minimalism got so, so tied up with this because it is when we're talking about training your mind and thoughts, That's not necessarily hop step and a jump to minimalism, but when you think about having a positive outlook on life, regardless of your circumstance, then it does become a sort of um, link to living with less, living without external comforts, living with minimal um, material, you know. So I'll give you guys a quote to get us started. Treat what you don't have as non-existent. 
Look at what you have, the things you value the most, and think of how much you'd crave them if you didn't have them. But be careful. Don't feel such satisfaction that you start to overvalue them, that it would upset you to lose them. Yeah, I really like that quote. I think the first bit, the treat what you don't have is non-existent. I think if you take that, you know, obviously don't take it to the extreme. I think that's what we're finding with this book. Don't take things to extremes. But, you know, if you just say, well, look, I don't have the newest Xbox or something like that. If you're not dwelling on it, if you're thinking about other things in your life, what you do have, you're the better for it. Obviously, you don't want to you don't want to deny the existence of an Xbox that maybe not that far. But (laughs) (laughs) but um, yeah, if you're not dwelling on it too much, then I think um, this is this is one of the more uncontroversial um, themes in the book for me, because I feel like character and virtue um, was less straightforward. I I don't think this works as a metaphysical text, to be honest. But um, and I think nature we had a few problems with and training the mind and thoughts, obviously to an extent but i i feel like this one i could get on board with even as a non-minimalist i keep feeling about stoicism that it's kind of meant for people who experience the world in in very high volumes like everything is really groundbreaking like experiencing loss it's very traumatic experiencing you know uh, longing for something like the peaks and lows are so extreme that like you need this meditation in order to to balance yourself and and bring you to to be more uh, more at peace, be more even. But I, I feel that exactly in that way, it kind of misses a lot of people who I don't know maybe experience things more subtly. If you're okay with with what what you kind of have and and you can live with what you have and what and what you don't, uh, that philosophy kind of pushes everything out. I know I do get what you mean. Like I'm personally a person that is very overwhelmed with desire for things. Like if I see something I want, I like want it now, express shipping, overnight shipping, you know. Yeah. Like <laughs> I, I do have sort of a problem with just impulse buys and stuff like that. So I feel like this chapter is probably the most relevant for me in terms of like what I could action. And um, yeah, just just to do the mental work, just to sort of get over sort of this desire and sort of not be so gripped by it constantly. I think, um, I think, yeah, this, this is just very relevant for me. Mm -hmm. I think this sentence, this quote mainly focuses about physical possessions, but honestly, even if you look past it, it talks about the idea of dealing with what's important to deal with right now. I mean, treat what you don't have as non-existent. I think you can look at it as if if it's not a problem that you have right now, don't deal with it. Don't give it the time. And if it is, if it is something that you have, don't overvalue it. You know, like do what you must do and and move on and learn what you can learn from it and move on. Carry on. Yeah, carry on. <laughs> perpetual joke (laughs) i know this isn't what this sentence is talking about because i honestly think this is about physical possessions like i said but this is an idea that that kept popping up in the book um don't waste your time on things that don't matter i think when marcus wrote this i think he was purchasing an iphone so (laughs) (laughs) oh sorry it was before the iphone i meant i meant a blackberry my bad (laughs) Um, I think uh, there's another quote. 
Is your cucumber bitter? Throw it away. I love it. Are there briars in your path? Turn aside. That is enough. I think just do what has to be done and move on. Don't stand and overanalyze everything. Use your time for the better. I, I, I don't know. This kind of reminded yeah. me of that. It, it reminds me that, that it says, um, stop discussing what is to be a good person and just be a good person. Oh, yes. That was a good yeah. one. <laughs> this quote stop debating what a good person should be and just be one because you can talk all you want but until you do what you talk about you're not doing nothing at all yeah i agree i think what you said is just uh it's another way of saying it let your actions speak instead of, of if, yeah. your, if your cucumber is bitter just throw it away yeah, yeah yeah do what has to be done i think that's even like a greater theme in this book the putting um thoughts into action because it is practical philosophy and it's in its best form, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, if we're talking about being a good person, you can debate what a good person is, but even forget about letting your actions speak. How can you know what a good person is if you haven't tried being a good person? You can debate without experience, you'll go nowhere. Start by being a good person in the way you know how to be and go from yeah. there. Exactly. Which I think, if I may uh, give one more quote. You may, sir. Um, <laughs> Thank you. It's a, it's a very short one, but I think maybe the one I loved most. It's quite possible to be a good man without anyone realizing it. I mean, if you're trying to be a good man and people don't seem to realize, don't let that slow you down. Be good for the sake of being yeah. good, you know? Which I think stands in contrast with a few other quotes from this book, because a lot of the times when he's talking about being good, he says, be good so the gods won't be angry. <laughs> be good so nature will agree with you. He said that early on, and then he said what you said, um, be good just for the sake of being good, essentially. But then he goes on further than that, part three, and then he says, it's no good just being good for the sake of being good. You want to understand why, which he goes on about like benefiting society. You want to... and. I can't remember the quote, but he says um, you want to do um, good for society because if you really think about it, doing good for the society is doing good for you. So um, yeah, th these are the sentences I don't agree with. You don't I mean, think that? I think it takes it. No, I I, I do I, I do, but I think where he comes from is is just over analyzing yeah. it. I mean, yeah, which reminds me of another quote which says, someone hates me, their problem. Mine to be patient and ready to show them their mistake, not spitefully, which is the first part of the quote, and I agree with it, I love it, but then he goes on to say, that's what we should be like inside and never let the gods catch us feeling anger or resentment. <laughs> exactly. Why think... not being good just for the sake of being good? I mean, yeah. uh, only be good so the gods won't catch you being bad. I yeah. don't know. I, I gotta it say, starts I gotta so say that nice. I think that whenever he's referring the gods, he's kind of referring the universe. It's not like... Um, yeah. It's more... Yeah, yeah. It's not for a certain entity. You mean like sort of like natural karma? Yeah. Is that... Yeah. Maybe. I, that's kind of what I feel like as well. But yeah, I, yeah, I agree with I you agree. completely. Yeah. I think we um I think we did a we covered the book actually quite well. Obviously there's more themes than just that. He talks about death, he talks about the present moment, but I think I think for the our purposes I think um we got the most out of it for a book that was written um almost a thousand years ago. Cl closer to 2000, yeah. Quite incredible. Honestly, I never I never really read a lot of philosophy books and I kind of I I love this book. I mean I didn't agree with a lot of the ideas here. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to disagree with a bit of it. I think um, yeah, shows yeah, that yeah. we're examining it. And I think, uh, and ironically, I think 
maybe unironically, but I think Marcus would congratulate people for disagreeing with it as well. Yeah, I, he wrote this book as a diary to himself, as things that was, yeah. were important for him to remember. And I think, if, <laughs> give me a notebook and let me just write stuff in it you know, <laughs> for 19 years. I, I don't think I would agree with with my notebook anymore. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Give it 850 years, it might, it might come around again. <laughs> I really enjoyed the experience of you know, having a bunch of um, ideas and situations presented to me and having to analyze them. I give it one hour every morning on the way to school. And, and honestly, I felt like I was using this time for, the, for, for better than usual. I mean, awesome. I, I really thought I got out of, out of it a lot of thinking, which I wouldn't have otherwise. I, I was happy for it. Cool. Yeah, I, I think it, it was an interesting experience. I think um, I started reading yeah. it, then I went to the audiobook version. And I got to say that um, once I started hearing it, then the whole mantra thing kind of fell into place. And, and uh, I, I related to it a bit more. Yeah, I read it on um, on my Kindle first. And I read it really analytically. So I, I was like, where is he grounding his ethics? And where, where how is he connecting these dots? And what's his reasoning? And I, th- I do think that's probably the wrong way to read it. I think, I think you should read it more as more of a self-help sort of book, I guess you could say, um, than a rigorous um, ethics book, um, because I don't think the arguments are um, as tight as, as other people have put it out with Aristotle and Socrates, Plato and um, Kant and stuff. And I, again, it, it's really hard to bash this book when you know it's his notes because obviously yeah, he wasn't yeah, intending definitely. for me to read it. So it's, <laughs> yeah. it's tough for me to say, He well, takes the poison you know, out of this thing. <laughs> yeah. But, um, <laughs> but I think it's best read and I read it for a second. Well, I listened to it a second time for, um, okay, here we go. I listened to it for a first time, but experienced it for a second time on Audible as well, the same as Barrio. And I, and I read it and, and listening to an audio audio i'm a little bit less analytical because like you don't stop as often and i think that really benefited me just to sort of go over it and just hear it so um i think i think that's the best way to listen um best way to experience yeah, it I would agree. be through audible i don't know i tried to listen to it and i found myself pausing after every sentence just to try and figure out what i think uh, and what i feel about it i'm glad yeah. i read it first then so i sort of had a vibe of it and, <laughs> yeah yeah, don't analyze it too much. I think I think you want to take these ideas, um, you know, take them with you, put them in your toolkit, and um, you know, don't obsess too much over over the details. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, when I overanalyzed it, I, it, this book yeah. made me angry. But no, <laughs> but I totally. Yeah. There's a lot of good ideas here. There's a lot of quotes. I I quoted 17 sentences that I liked. I decided not to quote anything that I didn't like because. Yeah. There's a lot, <laughs> but <laughs> but if you don't overanalyze it, then there's a lot of good ideas here and a lot of things that I would remind myself every day if I could, and and, and I think my life would be better for it. Awesome, cool, good job, guys. Yeah. There's this movie, American Beauty. I think we all heard about it. And I absolutely know nothing about it, but I keep hearing references to it, and I I'm pretty sure that you know, like we had with Jaws, that we're gonna we're gonna see it and just understand all kind of references we saw um, in in all kind of mediums throughout the years. We'll understand that it came from there. So yeah, I think it's gonna be a fun experience. 
I kept seeing the the cover of the DVD in um, the video store we used to have when we were yes. kids. Uh, that's how I, I Googled it when you were talking about it. And the I just I recognized the um, cover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I planned to rent this movie more than once, but I never did. Uh, I think it's a good choice. I don't know what to expect at all. I don't know anything about yeah, it. Yeah, definitely. I just verified that it's not kind of... Well, it's, a, it's supposed to be a drama, so <laughs> it's not yeah. like, uh, I was afraid it's going to be yeah, a like a movie. horror or maybe something gory. <laughs> you don't like yeah, those. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I just keep from, from them vigorously. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, let's see where this goes. Well, thank you, Peter. Thank you, Barrio, for staying true to our goal. Thank you, listeners at home, for helping us along the latest stage of our quest. Uh, we hope that you join us next episode, and we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. See ya. Bye. That's what our intellectual powers are for. Don't let yourself forget how there is a single harmony, just as the world and the sponge and the egg white still hold good, even if the world...